before I get into today's message, I want to just start by starting with this thought that sometimes, sometimes we get tempted or we are tempted to get frustrated by the brokenness around us, perhaps blaming others and God for our struggles, blaming God because life is hard for us, or blaming others because they made life challenging for us. Sometimes we get frustrated because it's just the way it is. But at the same time, we do so without acknowledging our own brokenness and our own contribution to the mess, our own mess and the mess of the world in general. Because we're all part of it. We're all part of the problem. We're part of the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're human. But oftentimes we have more grace for ourselves in our situations because we, we need to, we want to, more grace than we have for others in their complications or more grace than we have for God. And I want to talk about the fact that and I'm right, the song just was so good. All our life he has been faithful. All of our life he has been so, so good. It just takes the time to remember that in the moments. I'm going to come back to that later on in the, in the talk today, in the sermon. Before I do, let me remind you that we've been in a series starting this year. On January 8th, we started a series on the topic of the Bible. We're just kind of going through the Bible uh, this year. Uh, we started um, uh, reminding you that the Bible is a, a, comes from, from a Latin word, which comes from a Greek phrase that, that means, it's, the word is tabiblia. It means the books, the books, because the Bible, we think of it as a book but the Bible is actually a collection of books. That's why it means the books. Um, it's actually 66 different writings. But really, the Bible is not just a collection of books. It's really two collections of books. The one collection we call the Hebrew Scriptures, or perhaps if you've been raised in church world all, much of your life, you might call it the Old Testament, right? And the other section, the Christian Scriptures, or we call the New Testament. Uh, these two collect are collections of books that together bound together, make up what we call the Bible or the books today. And um, so we started kind of navigating through the, Christ, the, through the Hebrew scriptures because they come first in our Bibles, they came first chronologically. And we're taking this journey, this narrative arc through the, the stories of the Bible. I meant to go faster, and as I get into the weeks, I realize I'm going to slow this thing down because I can't help myself. So we're going to be taking a journey uh, through the narrative arc of the Bible. And... Um, we're going to uh, see these things starting with the Hebrew scriptures and eventually, someday, the Christian scriptures as we, as, we, as we make our trip. But we said that the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament, begins with five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That we call them the Pentateuch or the Torah. They are books that were largely penned under the leadership of a man named Moses. And so we spent two weeks this year talking about Moses and his early life and kind of understanding where he was early on through the point where he led the Hebrew or Israel slaves, the Israelite slaves out of Egypt and out of slavery and into the wilderness. And we, we took us to that point in Moses' story to set the stage because then in that time he, he leads the writing of, the penning of, these books called, called the Pentateuch. And it covers their story, their history, their laws, but also their backstory, where they came from, who their ancestors or patriarchs were, and also the story before their patriarchs from the very beginning. And so the first book is the book of Genesis. It's their past. It's the beginning, the book of Genesis. And we've been studying uh, uh, Gen the first 11 chapters of Genesis um, 
last week and then again today. I want to remind you that Genesis 1 through 11 is very unique because whereas, again, much of the, Mo of the Pentateuch covers that one generation that they're living in, their laws and their story, and much of Genesis covers the past about their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's children, including Joseph, four generations. The first 11 chapters of Genesis covers the entirety of human history prior to Abraham. And so we, we're going to take these, a look at these weeks, and we talked a little bit about the, the controversial nature amongst Christians and how they view Genesis 1 through 11 a little bit last week, and we'll touch on that some more, not this week. But I want to remind you that um, Genesis 1 through 11, it can be broken down into four sections. Genesis 1 through 11 covers these four topics over a large period of human history and world history. It covers four topics. The first one is how did it all begin in Genesis 1 and 2. And then how did it go wrong in Genesis 2 through 5. And then why is life so short, Genesis 6 through 10. And then why are people so different in Genesis 11. And we wanted to look at these very broad 11 chapters and all of their questions that they produce and the, and the easy answers for some people and the not so easy answers for others and how we sort that out. We just wanted to talk about that for a couple weeks. I knew I couldn't do it in one week. So I decided to break it into two, but it became clear this week I can't do it in two weeks. So I kind of sat back and, and turned it into a, a trilogy, <laughs> a three messages on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so we can kind of look at these ancient times and these big topics. And so last week we talked about how did it all begin. We looked at the creation story. Um, and again, we discussed the different views that, some, not, 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 um, that Christians hold about that and how we should approach that. And, and, and we, we, we waded into that turf a little bit. And then, to, and if, by the way, if you missed any of these messages and they would help you, go to our website. You can find the links to the audio or the video. You can watch or listen and catch up if that matters to you. But today we're going to talk about the second one, how did it go wrong? And then the next week we're going to wrap up this trilogy of talks with um, the last two. To, the, the last two go together. You can't really separate them. And so we're going to kind of cover that next week. But today we're going to talk about how did it go wrong, or in other words, the fall. So let's get into it today. If you were with us last week, we finished in Genesis chapter 2, and we touched on this idea that we're going to start with just briefly, but we couldn't get into it very far on last week's topic. So I want to get into it today. We have man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, in the story. And Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So he gives him responsibility. He gives him uh, dominion. He gives them something to do and says, this is your responsibility to care for. Verse 16, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, well, you're sure to die. Now, the question begs then, why would God put this tree if you don't want them to eat of it. I mean, I hate to give God some good advice, but let me give him some good advice. If you don't want them to eat it, don't put it there, right? I mean, kind of an easy solve. Why would God put this there if he didn't want them to eat off the tree? And the answer is very simple, because God wanted to give them an out. He wanted to give them an option so they weren't doing it because they had no other choice. Because they said there's no other way. It's just this, he says, here, you want to go the other way? You don't want to trust and follow me? You have an option. You can do this. And it's a picture of God's love. And we say this all the time in church. The Christian message as a whole 
the gospel message, the, word go, the gospel, we describe the gospel as the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the technicalities. But the gospel message, the word gospel means good news, and the good news ultimately is summarized in the concept that God is love and that Jesus Christ demonstrated that for us. And we see that God is love by looking back at the story of, uh, when we look back and we see, um, you know, the whole story of God's picture. We see that in love, God created and uh, however you sort out creation, ultimately in love God did that. In love God created us. But in love God gave freedom to choose. And that's a powerful and important thing to understand because that's what love does. No one wants to be a robot or a puppet on a string or, or have no choice. And free, get the freedom to choose. We all value our freedom to choose, even if we don't, if, if someone doesn't agree with our choices or people who have some authority and don't like our choices, we want the freedom to choose and make our own way and deal with the opportunities that our choices bring or the consequences, but there are choices. We value that freedom. It's a gift. It's a gift of love. Now, we don't always value it for other people. As parents, we might want to not give our kids so much freedom of choice. We like to control that a little bit as they get older, too. Or maybe, you know, when we pray, we want to convince God to not let other people have that liberty. Like, God, make them do the right thing, God, you know. We want to do that. But ultimately, we value that freedom that God gave mankind. But with that freedom comes the, well, comes the possibilities. And, and with our freedom, we made a mess. We, we chose not God and all that came with that, the opposite of, of God's love and light and goodness and right, and we can't find all the death and destruction and, and pain. But we chose that. And we can't point fingers because we've all chosen that in our lives. But God in his love not only created and gave us that freedom to make that choice, but God in his love foresaw his foreknowledge. He saw that and he already planned his redemption to step in and bring us redemption and bring us the opportunity once we realize that wasn't so great apart from God. That if we want relationship with him, it's there. He made it possible. And so Jesus came and showed us what forgiveness looks like on the cross and showed us what, uh, uh, that death was defeated and sin's consequences were defeated and that his arms are open wide to, to a relationship with us now and forever, eternal life. But once again, he gives us that choice. He gives us the opportunity to respond in love because God is love. So in love, God puts man and woman in the garden and he says to them, here's an option. You don't have to, stick, you, know, you can go your own way. You don't, don't do this, but you can. And they did. And chapter three begins very strangely because we have a confrontation of the devil or Satan coming to tempt man and woman in the garden. And I don't know exactly, understand this. And look, look, I understand some of us like to be very dogmatic with our theology. The, I told you last week, the entire Genesis 1 through 11 is open to a lot of interpretation and you can take that for what it's worth. But ultimately, we have the picture that somehow that we have the presence of Satan and, and, and on earth, that the story in the scriptures tell us that he was a, a fallen angel, Lucifer, uh, rebelled against God and brought a whole cohort of the angelic beings with him. And they were cast out of heaven and apparently they're on the planet where God's creating man. They're here walking around and Satan is able to tempt man to do the same thing that he did when he tried to exalt himself to be equal with God. Now he's going to tempt Adam and Eve to make the same choices that he made because those turned out so well. So he comes to uh, them in the form of a serpent. Don't gross out. Apparently it's worse than that. If you, if you don't like snakes, by the way, some of you, how many of you, um, I gotta ask a question. This is not in my notes. I didn't do this last hour, but I gotta ask this crowd because you're so vivacious. How many of you were asked the whole snakes versus spiders question? Which is worse to you, snakes or spiders? 
Raise your hand. If snakes are worse than spiders, raise your hand. Okay? Okay. How many of you think spiders are worse than snakes? Raise your hand. Pretty, it's always pretty even crowd. It's always, it depends on the snake and the spider, I suppose, right? If it's daddy long legs or whatever. But, I mean, come on now. So, you don't like snakes. I don't know if it's better or worse to tell you this, but apparently at this point in time, the serpents had legs and feet walking around. Don't know if that helps you or makes it worse. I don't know. But apparently that's how the story goes. And again, take it for what it's worth. I'm just, we're reading the biblical narrative explaining how it all began. In Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any, from any of the trees in the garden? Now that's right there, another thing. If the serpent's talking to you, I don't know how you, how you parse that one out there. I might be running right then. Unless that was just normal, or they were fluent in all the animal languages, I have no idea. But somehow, the serpent's talking to her. Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Now, folks, we just read it. That's not what God said. That's not what God said at all. He said, don't eat of this one tree. But, but, but the serpent's doing what people do. He's spinning God's words to his own ends. We know we, people do that, don't they? Just watch the news, right? I mean, well, everyone does that on all, on all sides of every issue. People spin what they want, right? We do that. Did God say you can't eat of any of the trees? And, and, the, and the woman answers in verse number uh, two, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, she replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now I've heard people speculate that she's adding to what God said here because she said he may not eat it or touch it. And it doesn't say that God said you can't touch it in the previous chapter. I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not. For all we know, God told them 20 or 30 times, don't do that. Maybe he did say one of the times you can't touch it either. I don't know. But um, we don't have record of him saying not to touch it. It could be that they kind of added extra rules here to keep themselves extra safe. Some extra boundaries or some, uh, what do you call it, uh, um, yeah, it's the boundaries. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the early Jews did that, by the way. The early Hebrew people, when they had the written law of Moses that came, a lot of them, they wrote an oral tradition as well. They gave them extra rules to help them not break the written rules. And the oral tradition was as important as the written rules became to them. Maybe, they, maybe even Adam are adding an oral tradition to the written rule. We can't eat it or touch it. I don't know if God said that or they added that. Either way, they're saying, if you do, You'll die. That's the, 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 the opportunity that God gave us. Well, verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And he's tempting her with the same temptation that, that, that his fall brought, desire to be equal with God. God's just holding you back. But God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God's trying to limit you. God doesn't want you to have what he has. So he's holding you back. He's controlling you because, because you're missing out. Well, if God was controlling them and trying to make them miss out, then why did he put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why not just hide it from them? That's not a very logical conclusion. But again, temptation isn't always logical. It's usually emotional. So, you know, he's holding you back. He's trying to make you miss out. And, and, and you don't know what you're missing. If you, you'll be like him and you'll, your eyes will be open. It'll be great. Well, sure enough, in verse 6, the woman was convinced she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. 
and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is interesting. Immediately they got what they were promised. Their eyes were opened. They had a bigger perspective, but they didn't like what they saw. And that's often what happens when we say we pursue what we want to do, what we want to get. As long as we get what we're after, and it's not what we hoped it or, or thought it would be. We didn't think it through that clearly. And instantly they go, ha, oh no, you know. They're instantly not, they're panicking. Now they see themselves in a different light through a different lens, and they feel a shame they never felt before. They don't know why. And so their goal is to cover themselves with fig leaves, to which Eve worked very rigorously on, and Adam kind of peaked. I don't know. But they were trying to figure this out real fast because it's awkward. And verse 8 is very interesting for us because it says, when the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Why? Why? A lot of reasons, potentially, because they weren't happy with the fig leaves. It's a shame. But we can relate to that, can't we? Don't we all know what it's like to hide from people that we feel we've disappointed or let down? I don't even mean authority. I mean peers. If we have someone in our life and they don't want us to do a certain thing, but we did it anyhow, or they thought something was a bad idea, but we did it anyhow, we went against their advice, or we did something that they wouldn't have approved of, or we kind of did something that, that might offend them or, or just annoy them. Or they, what do we tend to do with people when we, when we have a moment like that? We tend to avoid at all cost. We're going to avoid. We don't want the confrontation. We don't want the conflict. So we avoid because we don't want to have to explain and have that uncomfortable moment. And that's true with authority, too. You ever have, you raise kids and have a child break a rule? One of my kids growing up would, you know, sneak into the goodies they weren't supposed to get into and would hide. You always knew they were doing something wrong when they were hiding. They were never doing well in hiding, you know. Okay, when I, was, when I grew up, I had a bunch of siblings. One of my siblings, I won't say who because they might be listening or watching later. Um, one of my siblings, when they were being potty trained, was old enough to understand, you know, you know, that they're supposed to, they were old enough by this point to still be being potty trained and know that they're supposed to be using the, the big person's toilet. And um, they, um, they did, and whenever they did, it was, yay, good job, trying to encourage them positively. But, but when, sometimes they would just, they would, they would not make it because they got too busy playing to remember to do the deeds, so their pull-up would get full. And every time they did, you know what they did? They'd go and hide. Why? Because they have to admit they didn't, they didn't get the hand round of applause for doing the big, boy, the big boy or big girl thing, right? And so they hid. And so that's how we knew that they messed their diaper besides the smell was you'd find them under the coffee table, right? Like, ah, I know what happened here. And that's what we do. We hide. We hide sometimes when we're, when we're embarrassed, when we're, when we're ashamed, when, we're, when we don't want to have to face someone who there's going to be an uncomfortable exchange. And the man and woman hid from God. And the Bible says that God came down and talked to them. And confronted what happened, and, and, he, and instantly there was consequences. He, you know, tells the serpent he's going to slither on his belly from that point on. He basically makes a prophecy about the coming Messiah. We're not getting into the whole story today. I mean for this to be an overview. I get lost in the weeds, and I'm trying to walk that fine line so we won't look at every detail. But what I want to point out today is that God looks at the man and the woman and says, life is going to be more challenging now that you've done the wrong thing, now that you've gone away from me, the further we go from God, the more challenging life becomes, the more difficult. All the things that happen next are things that, that they were already experiencing, but they become more complicated. 
You have Adam and Eve, and, they, and God says from now on, things are going to be more of a challenge. When you give birth to children, it's going to be through pain and toil, not just the birth, although moms, God bless you, wouldn't want to be you, but that's painful. I'm told, or it looks painful. But it's not just the birth. It's not just the travail in, in birthing, it's the travail in raising. And then they're toddlers, and sometimes you're running around saying, I'm so exhausted, I'm so physically exhausted. Is there sainthood for raising toddlers? And then they become teenagers, and you're like, I'm not physically exhausted, I'm emotionally exhausted now. <laughs> and then they become adults, and you're like, I'm still worrying and praying, and laying awake at night sometimes wondering what I, what I did, how I did, and how they're doing, and all that kind of stuff. It's a whole new life. And God says to, the, to Adam and to the, that from now on, humans are going to struggle with, with work. That you're going to keep working the ground in the world, but, but, but it's going to be harder. That, that making a living and making things work is going to be with thorns and thistles. It's going to be more challenging from now on. It's going to be, it'll be a harder uh, road to pavement. Again, these were things they were already doing. They were going ha- to have a family. They were already tending the garden. But now the further they got from God as they walked away, it became that much harder. And a reminder to all of us that the further we get from God, the harder things are. And some people look at God saying, in fact, he says in verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you're made from dust and to dust you will return. And some might, might look at these verses and say, God was punishing them. God was being punitive to them as retribution for their sin and for disappointing him. And sure, that's possible, okay? He's God, he could do whatever he wants to do. How could we question him? But it's also possible that there's a different lens to see that through. That God wasn't being punitive or having retribution for, for disappointing him, but that God was doing what was good for them. That God was saying, and I, I understand that for some of us, if we look at life, we're, we believe, maybe we've been handed a view that God is just angry and punitive only, and we, that's how we, we are that way because of that. Or maybe because we're that way, we think God's that way. But maybe God was stepping in and saying to the couple, hey, life's going to be more of a struggle because that's what's best. Because it's the struggle, it's the work. I was talking to one of our members in the earlier service who, who just said, man, I had some time off, and, and, and I saw the downside of being off for a long period of time. I'm looking forward to having something cha- to challenge me again. And I thought, I know, it's something about the struggle of life that's so good for us. That the idle mind being the devil's workshop is a true statement that we get late. Look, Adam and Eve had it easy in the garden. How did that turn out? God says, you're going to struggle more, but that's going to be good for you. We know that's true in life. Don't we all know someone who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth? How did that turn out for them? How wholesome was that? The struggle of the world, the struggles of life are so much for our benefit from the very beginning. But God didn't just leave them there in trouble from their own mistake and their own sin. In verse 21, it says this, the Lord God made clothing from animals' skins for Adam and for his wife. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel right there. It's the second time in this short part of the story that God pictures the gospel. That he shows them that there is one day coming a redeemer, a savior through their lineage. That as he said earlier, we didn't read it, that, that, that their children, their descendants one day, they'd have a son who would, who would be the Messiah, who would crush the serpent's head, would crush the, the enemy, would crush sin and death and its consequence. And be bruised himself in doing so. But he also shows them that you tried to cover yourself, you tried to cover your own uh, sense of shame and your own, fix your own mess through the fig leaves. And it, didn't, it wasn't adequate. And that's okay because God says, I'm gonna show you that I can do it for you. 
and they clothed him from animal skins, which, which took a sacrifice, which pictured that one day the Messiah would come and he would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. It was all a picture of, of, of the gospel message and plan. From the very beginning, God already had his plan of atonement. And he shows them, I'm going to cover you. I got this. You don't, but I do. Well, God's redemptive ark is set into place because he cared for us, one and all, just Adam and just Eve, and all of us ever since. Now they're going to start their family, and chapter 4 of Genesis is the starting of their family. We're going to read a little bit of that together as well today. Genesis 4, verse 1 says, Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said... With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. And I don't know what she means by this, but it's very interesting to me because she's sitting here thinking to herself, this is it. I mean, moms, I mean, it's a wonder, to a human life, wow. Whether it's your first or your tenth, it's an amazing deal. But this was the very first period. That's remarkable, right? Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain, so this is what's happening. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Now, I want to explain what's going on here. They were taught from the very beginning with Adam and Eve that, that, what, that there was a coming Messiah, that they looked ahead to a Savior that would come and be their Redeemer, that would be the atonement, the atoner for their sins, to put their faith in God. People in, in, from Adam and from the very beginning looked ahead to a promised coming Savior, the same that we today look back on a Savior who came. Just a different time frame. And so this relationship was built into the space where they would have moments with God where they would come and present their confidence and faith in God and his sacrifice, his atonement for us. But it says that when it came time, when harvest time came, that Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. His crops. Why? Well, we'll explain in just a moment here. But it goes on and explains this in verse 4. Abel also brought a gift. He brought the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock, and the Lord accepted Abel and his gift. But he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, why? Let's, let's, let's unpack that before I spend time in this verse on the screen. That, that ultimately what they were doing is they were bringing to God a symbol of their relationship with God. And Abel understood what God had showed Adam and Eve, his parents. But they believed that, that there was a Savior who was the Redeemer, who was the atonement for them. And his sacrifice of bringing his, his flock and bringing that kind of a sacrifice said, I need a Redeemer. I need a Savior. I need that atonement for my sins. I, I have the humility to admit that I am not perfect. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. But Cain said, nah, Look what, I, look what I did. That's good enough. And how, who is God to ever say otherwise to me? And I brought what I did, and if he doesn't like it, then he's not good or he's not God. I don't care, but this is, this is my belief, is that this is who I am, and this is what I did, and that's, that's how it's going to be if God wants a relationship. And God looks at those sacrifices and says, okay, Abel, you understand, you want this relationship, but you understand what, what, what's at stake, you understand what's being done, what I'm going to do for you. You responding to that. I will honor that. But Cain did not. And Cain got upset at the reaction. Cain got angry. He's angry. He's bitter. He's upset. He looks dejected in this moment. And it says in verse number um, 6, Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Look, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. 
Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. God is saying, Cain, I'm not picking on you. Don't act like you're a victim here. You're not. I'm not picking on you. I want relationship with you. The ground is level. The playing field's even. You know what, I, you know what I'm asking you for to enter this, this, this space? And, and, and Abel responded, and you refused. And I'm not, I'm not picking on you. The ground is level here. You know what to do. Go, you can fix it right now. But if you don't, then don't blame me. This is a you problem. I want you. I love you. I value you. Come on. And Cain is a picture from the very beginning. Cain becomes the earliest human example of self-sufficiency, resisting the idea of a need for God, resisting the idea of admittance of our own, his own brokenness, and proudly insisting that his way was good enough for God. It, it happens all the time. It happens in culture. It happens in, in the godless culture of, around us that says, you know, the idea that, that God has any, there is no God, but if he was, he's a jerk, you know. And leave me, leave my life, and he has no say-so, and I'm not bad in this. Even crept into the church world so much, so much. I see it all the time. The idea that comes in that says, don't, don't say that I have sinned or that I'm a sinner by default because that's what sin is. Doing sin is sinning. Don't call me that. Don't say that because that's, that's a real downer. It's not, that's not positive. That's not helpful. It's not building. And, and I'm good. And um, we're going to get to that later in the message here. But, but I, I, I'm good as, as it is. And, and if God really is good and, and is there, then he'll accept that. And that's the end of it. Instead of having that ability to say no, it's not self-sufficiency. It's not, it's not this anger and this upsetness that any other idea means that I'm more right, and, and anyone, including God, or those who claim to represent him and speak on his behalf are wrong. Standing in my pride instead of a posture of humility, it creeps into our lives so quickly, and Cain was the first one to show it. And you all know what happens next, right, with Cain and Abel. We're going to read it. But the outcome becomes murderous. Before I get there, I want to make a, I want to park just in the space for a moment to say something that we need to hear perhaps today. God has put this on my heart to say this here, so I'm going to do it. Cain and Abel were very different boys, even though they had the same parents. I'm going to say that again because someone needs to hear what I'm saying today. Cain and Abel were very different boys, even though they had the same parents. And that's so important to wrap our minds around because it's so easy to sit down and say, well, I don't understand. I mean, same Adam and Eve, same upbringing, same backstory, same rules, same upbringing. And here's Abel, great-hearted kid, tender towards God. Here's Cain, very proud, stubborn, and ultimately murderous. Same house. How do you sort that? How do you sort that? How do you sort the fact that you can sit there and say, I don't know, my kids, I don't, how did that happen with one of them? And I know when you're raising kids, it depends on what stage of life you're at. I've learned a long time ago that we're all different in how we're, when we're young, we just want someone to teach us the rules and the structure and how to turn out little perfect kids the way we want them. And then as you get older, you're like, tell me it's okay. Someone tell me it's okay. Maybe it's when they're teenagers. Maybe it's when they're adults, depending on their personality or the environment you're in, but at some point along the way, whether they go off a path that is heartbreaking or whether they just go off a path that's good, but it's not the path you would choose and it freaks you out. It's so easy to sit there and say, you're not, I want you to be independent, but independent the way I want you to be, you know? I want you to do what I want you to do because I'm not making what you want, you're independent, just in my mold, you know? I don't understand how you are. I don't understand how, what, did I go wrong? 
And, and boy, any grief we have with how our kids go as they get older, and believe me, if you've not been there yet, if you're young, I, I preach this way, I see the difference in the faces of young or aspiring parents and the difference of look in the faces of people who've been on the road a ways. And I always think to myself, before you push back, wait. Because it's a challenge at some point. I don't mean because everything's bad, but because things are different. You were as a child and an adult. And at some point, you have a journey. Boy, it's easy for parents to take any grief they feel about what their children are doing and to take that grief and splop a whole pile of guilt on top of their grief. If I was a better parent, right? And I want to say this to you. You're not a perfect parent. Adam and Eve could have felt that tension. Adam and Eve could have said, what Cain does next is terrible. If None of this would have happened if we hadn't sinned in the garden. And perhaps that's true, but perhaps they would have done it eventually. Perhaps the boys would have done it eventually. But either way, here's the thing. Adam and Eve already saw in the first story that you could give someone a perfect environment and they still mess it up. Was God a bad parent? Was God a failure? They had a perfect environment, Adam and Eve did, and they still messed it up. So yes, they, they were sinners, but, but Cain and Abel made choices. And, Cain, and Abel grew up and said, I get it. And Cain grew up and said, no way, Jose. How do you explain that? I don't know. Maybe all of us need to step back and not let any heartache we carry be complicated by unnecessary guilt or frustration that is not fair to, to bear. Maybe today we just need to put that in God's hands and find peace the best we can. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but let's hear it. That's a rabbit trail that I meant to take. Anyhow, Genesis 4, verse 8. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Well, that escalated. He killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In other words, God is saying, I wasn't asking, I was asking a rhetorical question. I know where he's at. I was wanting to see you admit, I know what you did. Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And that's a good reminder to all of us today that if we ever think that the things that we do to get ahead or to harm someone else or to do something that's unethical, and we think that no one's gonna catch us or no one's gonna watch, that God still sees. God says, Cain, you may have looked to your left and to your right before you did what you did, but you forgot to look up. And all of us in life ought to remember to look up when we make our decisions. Because there's a God who sees. And by the way, if you're ever mistreated or harmed by another person, God sees that too, and he will make things right in his time. We have to believe that. But God says, I know what you did. And he, he tells Cain, it's gonna get harder for you. Interestingly, by the way, he doesn't kill Cain. Very first chance for God to have capital punishment for capital crimes, and then God doesn't kill Cain. He actually says, I won't kill you, and will anyone else kill you, but you're gonna live in exile for the rest of your life. Interesting conversation, different door, story, different day. But sin has entered the world. And not just sin, but evil. There's a difference between sin and evil. And I want to point that out to you because I feel like sometimes, if we're not careful, we, we, put, we, we conflate those ideas. And, and when I say sin against versus evil, I don't mean the noun, like the concept of sin or the concept of evil in the world. I mean the verb, the action. Committing sin versus committing evil could be explained this way. Sin is when I do what I want to do. 
because I think it's better even if it's not because it's my freedom to choose. Evil is when I do something that harms, intentionally harms somebody for my own better against somebody else. And I know that someone could say, well, Arlen, actual, actually, all sin harms other people. Look at Adam and Eve. Their sin harmed all mankind. Your sin, I know that, I know. But listen, there's a difference between you not realizing that our sinful choices might bring harm that you didn't mean to bring versus walking out and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something that's gonna hurt someone else because I wanna get ahead. I'm gonna gossip about you, tear you down so you can lose your job, so I can get your promotion, so I can get revenge on you for offending me. So I'm gonna steal from you, I'm gonna assault you, rape you, kill you, whatever I'm gonna do for my benefit. I'm gonna do something hurtful to you for my gain and my pleasure. And that takes a, that's another level. And, and, and Adam and Eve brought sin, but within one generation you have evil. Within one generation you have atrocities. And here we go ever since in the world today. Anyhow, the chapter ends in Genesis 4.25. says, Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in the place of Abel, whom Cain killed. When Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. And of course, people, I had a teenager ask me after last service, where did Cain get his wife from? And that's a whole conversation that we tiptoed into last week and next week and uh, just, that's this not a hard answer, but what I don't have time for. Come see me after church. I'd love to talk to you about some of those weird ideas. There's some really fun stuff in these stories. But for now, what I want you to see is mankind is underway. And we're going to come back and finish this conversation next week. But what I want to show you is that what we see in the Bible, what we see in today's stories, and what we see in next week's story when we get to Noah and the great flood and, the, and Babel, when we get to um, the, the, the children of Israel out of slavery, when we get to the New Testament, what we see throughout Scripture and what we see throughout human history is a cycle that keeps repeating itself. A cycle. Here's how the cycle goes. This narrative arc that God gives us freedom. And as humans, we abuse that freedom and we make, we make a mess and we bring harm to ourselves and harm to others. And then we get mad at God and blame him for the mess. If God is good, why is there a mess? So then God steps in to fix the mess and brings sometimes correction, sometimes just a beautiful grace and redemption. But God steps in to fix the mess. And God gives a fresh start. And humans take that fresh start in their freedom and we abuse it. And we, and we make a mess and we harm ourselves and other people. Then we blame God for the mess again. And then God steps in and does something about it. And then God starts something new again, like Noah with a flood. And then a short time after, new freedom, new sin, new abuses, new mess, new blaming God. And then God starts, starts a new family, starts a new nation through Abraham and a new family he builds. And eventually they go off the rails after their freedom from slavery and make a mess and harm themselves and harm others. And then they blame God. And then God steps in and fixes it. And ultimately leads to Jesus Christ being born to show us the overall redemption story from the very beginning till now that God makes, that Jesus came to make all things new. And we celebrate as Christians our freedoms in Christ, but how many Christians have taken our freedoms and have abused them and have made a mess with them and have hurt others. The church has hurt people and church leaders and church people and religious people and community have constantly made a mess, harmed ourselves, harmed others in the name of God and our freedoms. And then God gets the blame once again. But ultimately, he's just there to say, I love you. I'm trying to fix it if you'll let me. I'm here for you. 
And it's a story that we can't ignore. And we're gonna come and finish this early narrative of, of world history next week. But I wanna close today by reading from Romans chapter five because in the New Testament or the Christian scriptures, Paul talks about this idea, but he's writing to the church in Rome about it and he talks about it this way. Romans five, verse six, Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. And that's amazing, for us sinners. Here's why that's amazing. Verse seven, now most people would not be willing to die for a, an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. In other words, we don't die for many people. You might die for your spouse or your kids or whatever, or maybe for something that you think is, that they need to live. You'll take a bullet for that person, maybe. But we won't die for a lot of people. We're self-preservationalists. But God, but God showed his great love for us. He showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were a mess, while we were doing what we were doing. That God said, I just love you, not because you're, you're, you're perfect, but because I love you. Does that, are we worthy? Yes, because we're worthy to him. He finds us worthy. Verse nine, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. And then he goes into a diatribe that we don't have time to read it all about how Adam, one man, brought sin into the world and death by sin and death passed on all of us because all of us have sinned. There's no finger pointing at Adam. We've all been part of it. We've all contributed. And he ties it all together in verse 18. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. In other words, whereas one garden led one person to make a sinful choice that affected the world negatively, in another garden called Gethsemane, someone else made a choice to say, not my will, but your will be done, that, that made salvation for everybody. Verse 20, God's law. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. It just exposes us to the fact that we are not perfect. But here's the cool part. But as people sinned more and more, that's not the cool part, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant, that God's grace shone through, that the worse things were, the more obvious it became that God is a gracious God. The idea that God is love is hard to quantify until there's brokenness, until there's, until there's something that's hard to love, potentially, until there's something that has to be forgiven, something that's egregious. And then sin was more and more abundant, God's grace became even more abundant. So that just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's the end game right there. Someday eternal life made possible because of what Jesus did to pay the price of sin, crush the enemy of death and give us eternal life but not in the, in the meantime to live with us and to indwell us through his Holy Spirit and to guide us and be with us in life on our way to that eternal life. That's what we celebrate. That's what we, that's what we praise. We don't come here celebrating ourselves. We come celebrating the gospel, the good news that God is love and we celebrate it together. I wanna leave you with a quote from Timothy Keller today in just a moment here that um, I'm gonna put it on the screen. I'm gonna take a moment to unpack it because it needs that because it, it goes with everything I've said today. 
And, and we need to think it through and what it means. Timothy Keller's a pastor, an older man now in New York, been an influence to many of us through some of his books and, and his leadership. He made a statement on the one time that I love. He said, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved than you could ever dare hope at the same time. That's a big, big idea. The first part's a big idea because, again, it's like the cane, the cane in us wants to push back at that. Don't say that I'm sinful. I'm a good person, and that's how it is, and anything else is just negative. Now, I might be made at other people's mess because they've complicated my life through their difficulties, and maybe at the world, maybe made at God because the world is a mess, so it must be his fault. I don't know, but, but don't put anything on me, right? We resist that, which is just so dishonest. Because we see ourselves and we, we, don't, we think it's somehow an affront to ourselves to be honest. So you see it with people all the time when they say, you gossiped about me to other people. That was hurtful and cruel for you to do that. Oh, I gossiped about you and you heard about it? Well, you weren't supposed to hear about that, but don't get mad at me. I'm a good person. I've got a good heart. I'm hurt that you're hurt. You know, we give ourselves a pass that we don't give somebody else, right? We give ourselves a different lane than we give other people because we don't want to own that we're part of it. We're part of the hurt. We're part of the world. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And it doesn't help us. We think that we're going to somehow find peace to get angrily push away the idea of the gospel, push away the idea that we're sinners in need of a Savior. That if we sit there and say, no, I'm great enough, that's all there is to it, that somehow that makes us feel good. But it's, it's living under a facade that is so unfulfilling. Because then, what if I'm not? What if I'm wrong about that? What a hollow hope and message to hope in my own perfection, lovability, and whatever else we want to put around that. But when we can admit, I am, and probably the things I do wrong are worse than I want to give myself credit for or blame for. I'm a mess, and I know it. I know my thoughts. I know my attitudes. I know my dispositions. I know the things I've done or thought. I know. More sinful than I could admit, than probably I could admit. But at the same time, more love than I could ever dare to hope. That's where the grace comes in. That's why I don't push the gospel away to find a better path forward to how you see yourself. Now, the best way to see ourselves is to see ourselves through the lens of being loved, even though we're flawed or broken. It's like having people in your life that you say, they like me because they don't know me. But if those people ever knew me, they'd be done with me. Or I wonder, would that person stay with me if they knew this about me? I gotta keep the I gotta keep in, I gotta keep the facade. When you find people in your life who walk away from you in those moments, you wonder, do you have true friends? And when you find people who stand by you when they know the good, the bad, and the ugly about you, and they stand with you anyhow, you're like, that's awesome. I can trust and rest in that person. We all want to find people like that. That's who God is. It doesn't help us to, to deny, to be Cain. I'm good enough. That's enough. Don't tell me otherwise or you're, it's not a good message. No, it's good. It's good news that, that for who we really are and all of our struggles and our good and our bad and our ups and our downs, that there is a God who says, I love you anyway. I just love you. And if we can just say, it's not trying to make myself the awesome person. I'm making God the awesome person. I'm not loved because I'm good. I'm loved because he's good. And that gives me security. That gives me safety. I can rest in that peaceably. It is well with my soul. And I hope today that the gospel message can wash over us in a new hope. And I hope that that can help us find grace for other people who make a mess around us that affects us in this world. That they are also more loved than they ever dare hope or that you could ever dare hope.
they are. Because God is that good. And so we got a decision to make today, to take the Cain or the Abel approach to our fall. We can sing a song, Lord, you're, I'm awesome and you're lucky to have me. We're not going to sing that one. Although if you write it, we could consider putting it to music and giving it a shot. Or we can sing a song that says, Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. I come to you humbly because you are the peace. The peace is found in being honest about me and you and knowing that I'm loved by an amazing, loving God, a father, a good, good father. 